Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Today's episode, we meet New York Times bestselling author Gavin Edwards, and we focus on his two books that explore the celebrity lives and careers of Tom Hanks and Bill Murray. It's true that Tom Hanks is a nice guy, but as Gavin notes, Hanks sees that summation as boring, and Hanks' life and career have the complexity and richness to prove it. He's also beloved as a star of the big screen. If Hanks is the nice guy, Bill Murray is the guy everyone wants to crash their party, but he has a dark side too. He's everywhere, he's random. He's often not on time for work, and even his lawyers and agents have trouble reaching him. He's a ghostbuster. Who are you going to call, right? We start with a section from The World According to Tom Hanks entitled The Ten Commandments of Tom Hanks. We spend half the show in Tom's world and the other half in Bill's. The Ten Commandments of Tom Hanks Breaking news shocker. Tom Hanks didn't always have a sunny, upbeat outlook on the world. Check out his POV, circa 1985. I'm a pessimist, pure and simple, he said. I guess it's based on experience, on a certain amount of wisdom that you acquire by the school of hard knocks. I always expect everything to stink to high heaven. That way you don't get disappointed. Fast forward 16 years and ask Hanks if he's an optimist. Shamelessly so, is his answer. Let's stipulate that some very good things happened to Tom Hanks in those intervening years. Not only did his up-and-down movie career go up, and then up, and then up some more, he went from the throes of a miserable divorce to domestic bliss. But for most people, pessimism isn't easily dislodged, no matter how much good news comes along. In a psychological study, lottery winners and people who were rendered paraplegic by car crashes proved to be roughly as happy as one another. The likely culprit is hedonic adaptation, meaning that human beings will get used to just about anything, and soon return to their usual baseline level of daily joy and misery. Tom Hanks, however, given overwhelming affirmation that his life was going well, learned to embrace the good news. Asked if he was happy, he replied, it's a choice I make, yes. Astonished by how joy had overtaken him, he said, I apologize to my friends and family because I say it all the time, but if you told me in 1966, when he was 10 years old, that I'd be an actor and make movies? I would have thought that you were insane. If you told me in 1966 I'd be married and have four great kids, I could never have imagined it. The personal is the political in many ways, including temperament. Hanks continued, I look at the United States of America now, underneath the Stars and Stripes banner, and all the hokey stuff that goes along with it, and despite the problems we have, and the constant strife we go through, I think we are undeniably at a better place as a country and as a people than we've ever been, and it's because of who we are. Life is complicated. Glasses are simultaneously half full and half empty. Optimists and pessimists will always have a wide range of evidence that can reinforce either point of view. Weeks after Hank said that, 
Terrorists hijacked four planes and crashed them into the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, killing thousands of people. The strife in the USA showed no signs of reducing. In good times and bad, if you ask Tom Hanks to summarize his philosophy, this is how he does it. Life is one thing after another. Sometimes he says that with exasperation. Like at the end of a bad day, when a woman on an elevator asked him how it felt to be on top of the world, and he replied, Look, lady, life is just one damn thing after another, no matter where you live. Sometimes he says it as an expression of joy. Like when he summarized his marriage to Rita Wilson thus, We knew it was going to be one damn thing after another, but they were all good damn things. But most often, Hank says it as an acknowledgement of the vicissitudes and cross-currents of human existence. He describes life as something good, jammed up right next to something bad. That's followed by something good. That's followed by two things that are bad. That's followed by seven things that are good. That's followed by something that's bad. It is one damn thing after another, which is actually wonderful in its constant variety. How does any human being make sense of that constant clamor and chaos, which adds up to weeks, years, and eventually a life? Hanks figured out what worked for him, and then resolutely applied those principles to his daily existence. He's not descending from the mountain with ten commandments on stone tablets, full of interdictions and prohibitions for the rest of the human race. But by studying the choices he's made, we can learn from his hard-won wisdom. These commandments are how one of the most admired people in the world has chosen to govern the unruly abundance of his own life. Following them won't turn you into Tom Hanks, but if you follow his example, you might find yourself leading a better life, with more joy, more good news, more meaning. Let Hanks predict your future. It's still going to be one thing after another, some of them so horrible that you'll weep for all humanity, but then others so magnificent and beautiful that you'll say, well, I'm going to keep going, because that's possible. Gavin Evans is the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books, including The Tao of Bill Murray and The World According to Tom Hanks. And he's the editor of the beautiful book of Exquisite Corpses. Edwards published his first book of misheard lyrics in 1995, titled Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy. It was published by Touchstone Books, and he's written about many celebrities. In the name of journalism, he entered a demolition derby, played skee-ball with Kristen Bell, and participated in the world's largest tomato fight. A longtime contributor to Rolling Stone, he's written for Details, Billboard, and the New York Times. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife and their two children. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Landis. Yeah, so how does a New York Times bestselling author end up in Charlotte, North Carolina? <laughs> uh, he is married to a museum curator who comes right. here for a job. All so right. Yeah, and you've been all over the place. You've been in New York, you've been in L.A., right? And, and I spent a year in London, uh, which is 20 years ago now. Uh, so I realized the other day, of like, oh, London's changed since then. I don't automatically know my way around town anymore. Yeah, and I understand you've got, you have dual citizenship, too? I do. Yeah. Okay. I was born to British parents in New York City. So. Right. Okay. Although dual citizenship with the UK is becoming less useful as they seem determined to blow their foot off with Brexit. So. so is there any difference writing in Charlotte, North Carolina than writing in New York or L.A.? Or? Um, the writing is pretty much the same. Uh, mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, sort of you have to sit down at you know, sort of either a table or at the computer and you mm-hmm. know, sort of put together a sentence and another sentence and another right. sentence until you're right. there. What was different in, uh, say, L.A. was I would get phone calls from magazines with things like, hey, would you like to go have lunch with Melissa McCarthy on Thursday? And you're like, or, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Or, you know, sort of, you know, Coachella's next week. You know, like, yeah, why don't yeah, you get in the yeah. car and go cover that? So I don't get those calls so much anymore. We don't have as many movie stars around here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, you have started your writing um, with music, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, I think you wrote, of of the many books that you've written, you wrote some of your early work was about lyrics that people got wrong. Right. The first, uh, or Mondegreens is the technical term. Um, uh, Misheard Lyrics, the first book was called Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy and Other (laughs) Misheard Lyrics. So what is one of your favorite uh, Um, lyrics that people didn't understand? um, uh, uh, The Beatles, instead of the girl with kaleidoscope eyes, the girl with colitis goes by. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I had... uh, you know that that song "Joy to the World," which they they sing in church around mm-hmm. Christmas. Uh, there was a 
member of the church who grew up thinking that when they got to Rock Hills and Plains, mm-hmm. they were talking about his hometown of Rock Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. And then, and then and my wife was reminding me this morning because we were talking about this. We we're gonna, You know, I was going to uh-huh. mention this. She said, you know, she had a student one time that says, are we going to do the Donger song this morning? Mm-hmm. The Donger song. Yeah, you know where the Don's early light, you know, <laughs> the, the, the Donger song. So, so how did you get four books out of that? I mean, um, so – uh, it wasn't just like, here's all those uh, songs I've misheard in my life. Okay. I did it originally as an article at uh, Details Magazine. Okay. And then just like letters started to come in. It struck this chord. Uh, People saying, me too. Oh, yeah, and here's like, another one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, I did a book and it was a hit and I got a P.O. box. Uh, I mean, yeah. so this is how long ago it was. It was not an email so, address. It was a P.O. box. And I had just huge cardboard boxes like I mean, full What a of great mail. thing for a writer. All the material is just coming to you in your it, mailbox, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, so my name's on those books, but really I edited them. Not yeah, like yeah. Them, yeah, so. they're other people's work. Okay. Um, you've written about uh, celebrities for a while. Mm-hmm. You, you did River Phoenix, right? Yes. Uh, Aretha Franklin, yeah. Um, or you wrote some articles about her, I suppose. Right, I, I wrote an uh, article about Aretha Franklin after she died, yes, okay. times. Um, and, of course, the, the books we're going to be talking about today, Tom Hanks and Bill Murray, uh, what drew you to writing about celebrities? Were you, were you, are you one of these uh, People Magazine people? Do you watch uh, Entertainment Tonight? I mean, what, what drew you to this? Neither of those. I mean... Yeah. I came to it through music. Um, the, okay. the, you know, I was just, uh, I was the guy in high school who was, you know, like, here's an album I've never heard of, and here's like the B side, and mm. oh my God, you know about uh, like this band? Let's uh, like sit down and analyze their lyrics right. for an hour. Yeah. And then the more I got into that, I sort of got curious about sort of how it functioned in our society. So it's mm-hmm. like the music doesn't exist in isolation. There's a cultural context, and part of the context is image making and videos and album covers and part of it is just the power of celebrity and Mm -hmm. you know sort of like how do we respond you know like aretha franklin it's not just that she has the greatest voice of the 20th century but it's Mm -hmm. like the figure she occupies Mm -hmm. uh, and like how we think of her and then once you start doing that it's only like one step sideways to saying well what about like actors and what about other famous people and you know, sort of people who are like artists in public. And so you figured Nick, the lounge singer, you need to write about Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wasn't that one of his gigs? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. That came, uh, I did a, uh, a Rolling Stone article on him, and I was just fascinated by all those stories of, you know, like Bill Murray crashes your party and uh, right. yeah. leaves. So. And we're going to talk about yeah. Bill Murray crashing parties before the episode's over. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, so let's talk about the structure of these books for a second, Hanks and, and Murray. Uh, you've got uh, The World According to Tom Hanks, The Life, The Obsessions, The Good Deeds of America's Most Decent Guy, and also The Tao of Bill Murray, Real-Life Stories of Joy, Enlightenment, and Party Crashing. And there's similarities in the way you structure them. You have a sort of a introduction and a backstory about each mm-hmm. of them, but then you work um, – I suppose the the, ma- the magic of the book is you sort of try to figure <laughs> out what what the, what makes these people tick, right? You're, yes. You call them the Ten Commandments for for time, and you call them the what the principles for Ten principles. And then at the in the third part of the book, you uh, you go through all the movies and right. give us mm-hmm. some information about how did you come up with that structure? So it was uh, uh, you know, I sometimes call them sideways biographies mm-hmm. um, because. Um, you know, I started with Bill, and I didn't want to just do the, and then in 1982, right, he made right, this movie. Right. And then, like, you've read these doorstop biographies where right. it takes, you know, sort of a couple of chapters of, let's talk about when the grandfather came over from Scotland. It's like the Bagats in the Old Testament. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, and eventually you get to the stuff that you care about, but it feels mm. sort of drowned in all the material. And, especially, and in each case, I wanted... I felt like you wanted to know what makes these guys tick, and the, like doing it step by step wasn't going to take you there. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, the, they're both people who, and this format doesn't work for everybody. And I had to mm-hmm. sort of, uh, after the Bill book worked, I had to take a step back and say, Does it work for w- yeah. Why does it work, and who else does it work for? Mm-hmm. And the answer is it works for people who have a, have a philosophy and visibly live it out in public. You know, mm-hmm. sort of like I always think of somebody like Kevin Bacon. Seems like a decent guy. He's like sort of he's got a big body of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm sure I would enjoy having lunch with him. Mm-hmm. But he's just a working actor. I don't think he actually sort of like stands for anything mm-hmm. beyond that. 
Whereas, you know, the, you know sort of uh, Tom Hanks is very clear, you know, sort of principles that he lives by and that he wants uh, to espouse. And Bill is just showing us day by day of like, here's the crazy things I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so in, in, in making these books, yes. um, did you have access? It looks like you had more access to Bill Murray than you had to Tom Hanks. Um, I uh, got to interview uh, Bill a bit um, right. uh, at a uh, film festival in Toronto. And it wasn't a lot of time, but it was just enough where I could ask him uh, the crucial questions. Yeah. Um, and I'd like you to tell the story about trying to get access to Tom Hanks because I've read his book uh, of short stories mm-hmm. in which every one of the short stories has a typewriter in it. Yes. Have you, have you, okay. And, uh, and he has how many typewriters? Uh, oh, um, he, he's gotten rid of a bunch of them, but at its peak, I think it was over 300. So his fetish is typewriters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so you got a typewriter, right? So, so um, I figured you, know, you pay respect. The man like right. uh, really cares about typewriters. So I got... Uh, his uh, the address of uh, his sort of office and his assistant, and I said, mm-hmm. "Well, if I'm going to write him a letter, you know, I, sh- I should write it on a typewriter." Oh, a typewriter yeah. I haven't had a, so where a typewriter do you, where for do you, Where do you find a typewriter? Go to the public library. <laughs> they uh, you, still have typewriters. They still, you know, if you go to like your local library, the you know, sort of up in like the computer room, there is one typewriter in the corner. Okay. And, but you know, there's no. I don't have liquid paper or correct type right, anymore. Right. So I'm just like type, and you get. Uh, you know, I used to be a pretty good right. typist. Did you have to take that little white out? And when no, you, the, I, I didn't have it. So I just <laughs> kept on, and I, there's no, uh, you know, after 20 years of like <coughs> the backspace key. Uh, yeah. You, know, you so don't know where like, it is, right? Right. Yeah. So at a certain point, you're just like, nope, that's burnt. That, like, so yeah. around the eighth one, you're Was like, it an electric typewriter? It or was, was it? an electric okay, typewriter. Okay, so you didn't get to hear the yeah. bell ring when right. you came out. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still satisfyingly yeah. tactile. Yeah, okay. And so I sent him a letter, and I got a typed letter back, and it was... A little bit passive aggressive, um, but it was so delightful. Like you couldn't be mad at the guy. It's like, oh, yeah. here's this charming letter where I've asked him for time, and he said I could give you an hour, like 18 months from now. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that's the, the Hollywood way of saying yeah. I'm not going to do it. Right, uh, right, but right. Uh, but the thing that uh, Tom Hanks did do, which I genuinely appreciated, was every single person that I got in touch with who said, oh, I don't know if I should talk to you. Let me check with Tom first. When they went and checked, he always said, sure, the guy seems okay. Uh, you can go ahead and have conversation. Okay, so that's right. how you got the stories and the information right, that you needed. Exactly. Okay. So in this first reading that you did at the top of the show, Hank sounds a bit like a philosopher. One damn thing after another, no matter where you live. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So have you found in, in writing about and, and following celebrities that, uh, that fame and money don't make people necessarily any more happier than – than others, except for the, of course, having the fame and the money. Right. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. Bill has a line about this where he says, you know, if you think you want to be rich and famous, try just rich. You, yeah, you may yeah. find that, you know, sort of like that's actually yeah, what you want. That would be better than famous, yeah. yeah. That way you don't get accosted every time you go into the, exactly. to the convenience store. Okay, just a little bit about uh, Tom Hanks, the guy, because you do cover this sort of a brief history. Two Academy Awards, right? Uh, yes, back to back. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I was looking at the list of movies, and it's really kind of amazing. His breakout movie was Splash, right? Right. N- 1984. Do you have a favorite movie that Tom Hanks made? Um, uh, the one that immediately jumps into my head is Castaway. Castaway, okay. Well, son. <laughs> <laughs> but he starts out Splash. Uh, and I'm leaving out some of these big, A League of yeah. Their Own, you know, No Crying in Baseball right. kind of stuff. A League of Their Own is the big turning point. Is uh, it? That, okay. So he makes a decade worth of uh, Hollywood comedies, um, and some of them are better than others, but, you know, there's sort of like The Money Pit and Turner and Hooch. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah and he's yeah. just kind of like <laughs> on the comedy assembly line. Right. And he started out in doing comedy on TV, right? Uh, he, he was um, in, I don't know if you remember the TV show, Bosom Buddies. Well, I read about it in the book. I All couldn't right, remember it, go. but yeah. yeah. yeah which I watched when I was a kid. So, okay. uh, yeah. And then it's like, hey, this guy on this like sitcom I like is becoming a star. But he went in to see his agents and uh, said, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, that, you know, sort of like... These roles have nothing to say about my life. Uh, you know, they're like they're artificial. Like he could tell he was just kind of spinning his wheels. And he said, you know, mm. like just get them. You know, like I don't want to be a guy who's having trouble falling in love, and my car doesn't work in a funny way, and so I can't get to work. And just like he just cleared his desk, and then parts he wanted to do started coming in, like yeah. with the League of Their Own. League of Their Own, then Sleepless in Seattle, and then mm-hmm. Philadelphia, for which he got a Academy Award, yep. right? And then Forrest Gump. The one, I mean. 
Uh-huh. Did that change? I mean, was it was that the movie, or was it? And then Apollo thirteen followed that. Yeah, uh, I mean, and he had this golden decade, and Toy Story is right Tor- in the middle. Toy Story is right there, and then I like this movie, that thing you do. He actually produced that and directed it, directed it, wrote and, it, and his wife was in the movie too, right? Yes, Reed Wilson. Yeah. Uh, then Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. and you've got Mail, The Green Mile. You mentioned Castaway, Catch Me If You Can, The Polar Express, Da Vinci Code, Sully, and recently The Post. Right. And I left out probably. He's made 50 plus movies. So, yeah. How did he do that? I mean, how, how did he. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's not, almost not enough time in the day. So, he, he, he made three or four a year at the beginning. Uh, okay. that, you know, there was just, uh, which was both him trying to get his career jump started and his first marriage was not a happy one. And so he was like kind of happy to have something that like got him out of the house. And so he just worked really doggedly for a while. And two marriages, four children. He's uh, the third of four children himself. Uh, his da- they, his parents divorced when he was 10. And, yep. and I think you talk in the book about how the kids kind of raised themselves. Right. Uh, and they, they went from place to place to place. His uh, dad was a cook and they would move around from town to town. And he was always, you know, sort of like at the kitchen of whatever restaurant he was working at. Uh-huh. So he said they were kind of like the wolf children of Northern California. The, yeah. you know, and did he kind of fall into acting? I mean, he was, he did some acting in high school and mm-hmm. then he did the Shakespeare festival, the Great Lakes Shakespeare festival, three years running. It was kind of the ringleader there sort of. So uh, he, uh, you know, he enjoyed the drama club in high school, but right. it kind of put it aside. Uh, yeah. So he's a young man, he's adrift, he's at community college. He's really not sure what he's going to do with his life. And he runs into a high school friend who says, what are you, you know, what show are you doing? And Tom's like, well, nothing. And the friend legitimately says, shame on you. And uh, this guy, you know, kind of like guilts him into saying you should be doing plays, which seems ludicrously over the top, except the friend was right. The guy was Tom Hanks. It turned out like that was, in fact, his destiny. So why do you like Castaway better than all these other movies? I mean, Uh, um, well, for... He was the only one in the movie, wasn't he? He in the soccer ball. You yeah. say uh, the volleyball. The, vo- uh, the volleyball. Um, he uh, so there's this tour de force in the middle of it, mm-hmm. uh, which I find you know it's mostly wordless and it's really you know as a stunt it's kind of amazing, but it's also really impressive mm-hmm. and emotional, just mm-hmm. like a storytelling. But what makes it the movie for me is that you know that's almost like you could you know sort of do that. He gets off the island, roll credits, mm-hmm. and that's the end. Except it's not, and so what uh, mm-hmm. like takes it to a higher level for me is him coming home to civilization and dealing with the consequences mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Helen Hunt, who he loves has gone on and married somebody else and has a baby. And uh, that I'm always a sucker for stories where you feel like the story is complete, but then there's like a whole other like emotional and dramatic level to it, which that okay. one turns out to be. Do you have a least favorite movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um the Money Pit, maybe something, something in that uh, genre. The, yeah, the money, I'm not crazy about the Money Pit. Yeah, uh, yeah. What are? Uh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. No, 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 no. Let's. Say, it would be one of the early comedies, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, the Burbs is not good. All right. Let's say. I'm going to say the Burbs. The Burbs. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, which has its partisans, but I'm not one of them. Let's get back to the Ten Commandments for a second. Yep. Um, I don't think I think it would be helpful. It won't take but a second. Can you just read the Ten Commandments? I so would that- be happy to read them. The first commandment: Excel at your life's work. The second commandment: Honor the sacrifices your elders made in the service of a seemingly impossible goal. The third commandment: Embrace your passions. The fourth commandment: Treat women with respect. The fifth commandment: Worship in the church of baseball. The sixth commandment, use the right tool for the job. The seventh commandment, don't dwell on the road not taken. The eighth commandment, remember that Shakespeare will tell you the truth. The ninth commandment, value your friends but accept your loneliness. And the tenth commandment, stand up for what you believe. Good concepts to live your life by. They are. And so, of course, these aren't things that he just sort of like drops into conversation with people. But you could, uh, so it's me looking through, well, what does he care about? Where does he spend like the hours and years of his life? And Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, uh, the second commandment was about honoring your elders and sort of the impossible goals they pulled off. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, that chapter is about, you know, like, he spent a lot of his life. Uh, fascinated uh, with both the space program and America in World War II. 
and there's similar uh, enterprises where you know people take on this huge uh, project that you know like seems impossible but pull it off and you know he's immersed himself he's made movies about both of them he's made HBO miniseries about both of them he's become mm-hmm. sort of like the poster boy for each of them right and so like saying you know like all right well why is that what why does he care about it and what do we learn from that and you flesh these out in the book you take each of these commandments and then you give us some life experiences that that, that he lived by to uh, to demonstrate that and so we're gonna we're gonna go into the third commandment for a minute just embrace your passions and uh, in addition to Star Trek. Apparently he's passionate about that. Surfing, Randy Newman, uh, blasting caps. Uh, <laughs> he, he also is a big fan of reading. So you, and, want, you want to pick up there? Yeah, yeah, and I thought that would be of local interest since yeah, this is go. the reading podcast. There you go. As one of America's most beloved popular historians, David McCullough was frequently approached by people who wanted to option his books for movies. He grew accustomed to the glad-handing rituals of Hollywood, and he knew the script they usually followed. First, a producer would tell him how much he loved one of his books. McCullough would thank him and engage him in conversation, at which point it would become abundantly clear that the producer hadn't actually read the book. So, when McCullough agreed to meet Tom Hanks at a diner in Sun Valley, Idaho, home to the Sun Valley Film Festival, he had low expectations. Hanks told him how much he loved John Adams, one of two McCullough presidential biographies that have been awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Oh yeah, here we go, McCullough thought. Then, however, Hanks fished out his own copy of John Adams, well-thumbed, full of post-its sticking out the sides. McCullough said he opened it to various pages, and not only had he read it, he had underlined it and made margin notes, and he wanted to go through it and ask me if various scenes were important. McCullough granted an option on the book to Hanks. The resulting miniseries, produced by Playtone, Hanks' production company, starring Paul Giamatti and Laura Linney, aired on HBO and won so many Emmys it couldn't go through the 12 awards or fewer line at the supermarket. Hanks was a voracious reader. In our modern world, that made him not just an unusual movie star, but an unusual American. But when he got interested in a topic, he wanted to learn as much about it as he could. Sometimes that curiosity meant that he plowed through an entire book about the history of cod, or the history of the potato, two books that together told the story of fish and chips. I could go to HBO and say, the most important thing ever pulled out of the ground is a potato. I see a six-hour miniseries, and I bet you could get at least a couple of scripts written, he joked. I'm such a dope. I can be intrigued by anything. But he wasn't reading because he was always looking for his next miniseries. Those projects naturally emerged from his book-fueled obsessions. Hank said, some of the best vacations I've had have just been in a tent, up in the mountains with a book. His reading list skewed towards history and science fiction. Authors he's named as particular favorites include Anna Funder, John Hershey, James Baldwin, Maeve Binchy, Sarah Vowell, Ada Calhoun, Bill Bryson, Dave Eggers, Alan First, Philip Kerr, Amor Towles, and John Scalzi. Scalzi said that being publicly name-checked by Hanks didn't seem to have any significant impact on his sales. Quote, But it made my editor, publisher, and mom happy, which is nice. Five books Hanks particularly recommended. Number one, The Aspirin Age, 1919-1941, a compendium of 22 essays edited by Isabel Layden, a collection of stories about events and personalities between 1919 and the war. You read The Forgotten Men of Versailles, and you just see politics in a nutshell. Number two, Stoner by John Williams. It's simply a novel about a guy who goes to college and becomes a teacher, but it's one of the most fascinating things that you've ever come across. Number three, Davida's Harp by Haim Potok. He weaves a glamorous world out of these settings and the family superstructures and out of the social era, almost always painfully, painfully sad. Number four, A World Lit Only by Fire by William Manchester. You learn so much, not just about the Dark Ages, but all this stuff that puts it into purely human terms. Number five, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. That fellow connected an awful lot of dots in that work. I thought the book would be a dense read, a slog, with a struggle for my brain on every page. I had a highlighter ready to mark the more pavement-thick paragraphs I'd have to go back and reponder. Instead, I flew through it like it was a nonfiction to Thornbirds. Does that mean I'm getting smarter? Hanks was the kind of guy who said, 
I went on a reading rampage. This was inaccurate, only in that it implied there were times when he wasn't devouring a book. He kept his books stacked up. Three columns, each six or eight books high, a mountain that he was perpetually wearing down, one volume at a time. And when someone tells me they finally read a book they could never crack, I take a whack out of a sense of a challenge. That's how I finally read Moby Dick, the book everyone pretends to know, he bragged. In 2011, I finally made it from Call Me Ishmael to It Was the Devious Cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. Okay, so we marvel at uh, how many movies he can make in a year, and yet he's reading all the books <laughs> at the same time. I have a hard enough time reading all the books for the people I'm going to have on the show here and doing other things as well, and he's making movies in the process. Some people, I mean, I'm going to assume he's a fast reader. I interviewed uh, the Stephen Colbert back in the day when he was starting the show, and I spoke mm-hmm. with, uh, to him, uh, him and John Stewart about each other, and they both said they both really read the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone's on the show, they actually sit down and do it. They don't fake their way through it. Well, one of the things we, we kind of alluded to at the beginning before we shift to Bill Murray here um, is this nice guy syndrome. And uh, you deal with that in the beginning of the book that everybody just, well, he, you know, he's just such a nice guy. Right. You know? and, so, and, and he, he himself, uh, it wasn't as if he was disappointed. Well, he, he might have been disappointed. He said his his thought was, and you quoted him in here, it's just boring. You know, right. There's more to me than just being a nice guy. It's reductive. That, you know, sort of, you know, nobody wants to be known only for being a nice guy. Right. Like, you know, he doesn't want to be a jerk, but he's hoping that, you know, sort of you'll find more to him than that. Yeah. Kind of like in high school when you're trying to figure out why they didn't date you. And well, <laughs> he's, he's such a nice guy, you know, whatever. And but so <laughs> one of the things, uh, you know, so many people just said to me, like, uh, when I said, hey, I'm going to do this book, he's like, oh. He seems like a nice guy, but I realized for a lot of people that w- that's the wall. That's yeah. the end. And saying, well, why? Uh, so I wrote something called The Nice Manifesto, uh, mm. where yeah. uh, the opening lines of the book yeah. are actually, Tom Hanks is a really nice guy. Hey, wait, where are you going? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and you're probably getting that feedback because in most books there has to be a little bit of conflict, right? There has to be a little bit of something that will draw people in. I mean, it's uh, it's not exciting just to read about the plain right. and the ordinary, right? And the sure. nice. So, so what is it about uh, Tom Hanks that drew you to him besides his celebrity? Well, um, I thought it's the fascination of the mega star who's unexamined that, you know, Mm -hmm. he's arguably one of the most famous people in the world, but, you know, sort of, you know, like people say nice guy and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, and it was fascinating for me as I went into it, like things that you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, sort of like he had this really uh, troubled childhood where like he was, uh, his parents were divorced. He was kind of raising himself. um, And, you know, what kind of person like forms that and what is like, the mental landscape that makes it possible for them to, you know, sort of become like who they are. Like, you know, you don't stumble into that. You've got to be driven to do it. So I wanted to like go deeper on that. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to go from uh, the nice guy to, to the guy that uh, everyone wants to crash their party. So uh, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to do Bill Murray and also our author to author segment. See you in a minute. Hey, listeners. We're just over 30 episodes into Charlotte Reader's podcast, having launched in October 2018 with a weekly schedule. But this Friday, May 10th, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be having a live podcast with the help of the Queen City Podcast Network, which will be part of the Shout Festival in Uptown Charlotte. It'll be at 1 p.m. on Friday at Coco and the Director in the Marriott. Kathy Izzard will be our guest author. She'll read and talk about her book, The Hunter Story Home, Battling Chronic Homelessness in Charlotte. It's a great story. Come on out and watch the podcast. You can do so. might even win a book. It'll run from 1 to 2 o'clock this Friday. Hope to see you there. Now, before I leave this spot, let me express my gratitude to our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words in Season 3. They understand the value that reading has for a healthy and enriching life. And well, it's pretty hard to be a reader without writers, which is why their support in spotlighting authors 
and their work is good for the community. Now, one more thing. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with Gavin Edwards, the uh, author of The World According to Tom Hanks and The Tao of Bill Murray and many other books, including books that uh, where people got the lyrics wrong in songs. Um, Gavin, I'm looking at The Tao of Bill Murray. He's got this smirk. Well, this is the paperback I'm yes. looking at, but he's got a little smirk on his uh-huh. face that's kind of indicative of maybe how he looked in uh, Groundhog Day, you know, when, when yep. he got up in the morning. Um, <laughs> oh, he was beaten down after he was getting yeah, up in the morning. But, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're thinking more like stripes, I think. Oh, uh, okay. that is more of a stripes look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What kind of training are you doing, sir? Army training, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Bill Murray couldn't be more opposite. It, it, from Tom Hanks, I suppose. But then uh, before we get through, I'm going to talk about possibly some similarities mm-hmm. between their principles here. But uh, probably the best way to do this is just to have you start off reading um, from the introduction of, of the book, um, which will give us a good feel for for this, uh, for this fella and, and how he behaves in public. You're standing on a corner in New York City, waiting to cross the street. Lost in thought, you aren't paying much attention to the world around you. Suddenly, a man puts his hands over your eyes and says, Guess who? Nobody's played this game with you since elementary school. It would be quite alarming, except that the voice is familiar. You can't quite place the speaker, but you're pretty sure he's a friend. You whip around and see, much to your surprise, international film star Bill Murray. He's taller than you expected, and his shirt is wrinkled. You sputter, groping for words unable to process the unlikelihood of this situation. Bill grins, leans in close, and quietly says, no one will ever believe you. Variations on this story began to circulate widely around 2010. Sometimes it happened in New York, sometimes in Austin, Texas, or Charleston, South Carolina. Sometimes Bill wasn't blindfolding people with his fingers. Instead, he was stealing a French fry off somebody's plate or grabbing a handful of popcorn from a stranger at a movie theater. But the punchline was always the same, underscoring that this encounter was an eruption of surrealism on an otherwise ordinary day, meant to be enjoyed for a few flickering moments. No one will ever believe you. For years, it was unclear whether this was something that Bill Murray actually did as part of a personal campaign to make the world a better, odder place or whether it was an urban legend that had grown large enough to have its own zip code. Asked point-blank about it in a magazine interview, Bill artfully managed not to unravel the mystery. I've heard about that from a lot of people, he said. A lot of people. I don't know what to say. There's probably a really appropriate thing to say. Something exactly and just perfectly right. Bill considered the rhetorical tightrope he was walking, and then he smiled. But by God, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Just so crazy and unlikely and unusual. In the 70s and 80s, Bill starred in comedy blockbusters such as Ghostbusters, Caddyshack, and Groundhog Day. Just as his success as a wisecracking film star seemed to be dwindling, he reinvented himself with wry, world-weary performances in much-lauded movies like Rushmore and Lost in Translation. In recent years, however, His fame has seemed almost completely disconnected from his accomplishments as an actor. Bill Murray, according to popular belief, has become the man who will drop by your bachelor party to give a toast, come to your assistance when you're having engine trouble, or crash your party and then wash the dishes. One minute, you might be walking around your hometown with your fiancé, taking engagement photos. The next minute, Bill Murray could be standing in front of you with his shirt over his head, rubbing his belly. If Bill Murray makes a surprise appearance in your own life, you know that no one will ever believe you. So did uh, Bill Murray ever make a surprise appearance in your life, Gavin? Not as, no, the closest I had to the Bill Murray uh, full-on experience was not that he uh, parachuted in and parachuted out, but it was another aspect of him, which is that uh, because he values spontaneity above all, uh, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as uh, someone who knows him says, he doesn't even buy round trip t- uh, plane tickets. Like you know, he goes somewhere and then right. when he's done, he buys a one way ticket, and then when he's ready to come home, he buys another one way yeah. ticket and comes <laughs> home. <laughs> and so he has, at this point in his life, 
Um, he has no agent. He has no manager. He has no publicist. Uh, um, what he does have, um, if you're trying to get him to be in your movie, is he has a 1-800 number. Now you talked about this in the book. It was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And people would try to get a hold of him through his lawyer, and the lawyer would say, well, now, what number are you calling? And yeah. they'd say, well, I'm calling this 800. And he says, well, that's the same one I have. Yeah, that, that, that's so, the right one. So, mm-hmm. so good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can call, and you can, like, leave a pitch, and maybe he listens to it. You don't know. Uh, but, you know. But, the, but one of my favorite bills was when, yeah. when they got on him, he was doing a movie, and they said, you've got to have somebody – You've got to have a handler of some kind. And so he hired an assistant, yes. An assistant so that we can get in touch uh-huh. with you through your assistant. So he hired a deaf assistant. Yeah. <laughs> that, and, was, that was actually yeah. on Groundhog Day. Uh, okay, that was Groundhog Day? Yeah, the, right. which was, uh, yeah, it was the glorious, uh, you know, like I'm not going to make communication easier. This so is it's not like comedy within comedy, right? He's yeah. layering the whole, it's, it's, it's yeah. like his life. Uh, well, you know, you were talking about the spontaneity. There's a section in the book where you have these little asides, and one of them is sign your name. Um, and he gets approached to all the time to sign autographs. So, right. you know, in this one time, he signs, you know, Miley Cyrus, you know. Right, have somebody's a good forehead. <laughs> yeah, and uh, a little boy approaches him, and, and, and he signs it to – after he knows his name, he says, Sydney, run away from home tonight. Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he signed his name uh, with the message, Merry Christmas in July. And then uh, then he signed once to a, little, uh, to a skinny boy that says, maybe lose a little weight, bud. Um, signed, John, signed Jim Belushi. Yeah. So he, it seems like he's – he's always doing sort of an improv even in real life. Right. right? Yeah. And so that's really sort of, you know, like – you know, I sort of talk about the like all of the manifestations of it, but the core thing is that like he's approaching life as an opportunity for improv, and he wants to sort of like jolt people out of the routine. The world is a stage, right? Yeah, well, it's him. more that the world yeah. is sleepwalking through life, okay. uh, and so he sees people doing that and like, hey, pop, you know, bzz, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. let's play. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah. so, and he said, I'd hope that people would do that for me. Like, you know, sort of like I know I have days where I'm on autopilot and I'm not thinking about it. You know, it's sort of like something that makes you like be alive in that moment. Well, there, like there was a story are. in the, I mean, there's so many stories. And I don't know where, how you found all these stories, but he's, he's in a cab and he's talking to the cab driver, finds out the cab driver plays the saxophone. <laughs> and so he says, and but, but he says, I don't have enough time to practice. And so yeah. Bill says, well, I know how to drive. And he says, get in the back seat. And, yeah. and he drives the cab while the guy practices his saxophone. Right. And then in, like, he yeah. takes him to like an all night barbecue place. <laughs> right. And, and he know, plays the sax. And he's yeah. like, yeah. ah, don't worry about it. You got the horn. We're going to be fine. Yeah. yeah. But, you uh, know, I mean, so the answer uh, is, you know, how you find, so some of these stories, uh, you know, sort of like have emerged over the years, like, you know, sort of people who work with him, talk about right. interviews and so on. Right. Like, and, but I found as I was doing the book that just, they were just, out there, all over the place. I would ask friends, you know, do you have anybody who has a Bill Murray story? Right. And they're like, oh, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. sort of like, I know, like, you know, talk to Charlie. Like, he met him once. And they would just come in, and I could research just, like, places he had been and, like, go online. And I would find people, you know, sort of like, I tracked down a guy um, who was playing, like, piano for him, like, at a hotel bar in, like, Rhode Island. And, like, Bill joined, and they, like, sang songs until 4 a.m., you know, there came a point where I had to hand in the book because, you know, like I had a yeah. publication date. Right, right, right. But I knew that, like, if I had, like, another two weeks, I would have come up with three other stories. Like, uh, I had, like, had a lead on something that's not in the book where, you know, he sort of, like, crashed a wedding in Hawaii and, like, sort of semi-officiated it, like, on a golf course. And I... I knew it happened. I just didn't have enough details to write about it. And in certain I was like, all right, well, this is the one that didn't quite make it in. Well, let's do just a little quick um, about him and his life because you do cover this in here. Um, was he always funny? I mean, he's, he was the fifth of nine children. His older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, was also a comedian. Yep. Um, he was always funny, but I don't think the family thought he was the funniest one in the yeah. family. It was uh, one of those things where everyone like at the dinner table like competing for like dad's attention and trying to make him laugh now was it his family or hank's family whose sister was going to be a nun that's bill's family and and bill and his brothers went one time where she was to try to and like nancy come on out she's in the monastery or whatever nunnery nunnery, and they're trying to get her to leave and come on you know yeah, they so, called her uh, the white sheep of the family. The white sheep of the family. Yeah, she okay. actually did become a nun. Like okay, a, mm. all right. Uh, so he, he, he's in a big family. Um, 
He goes to school, I found this interesting, as a pre-med major, Mm -hmm. but he rarely attended class, partied a lot. Yeah. His 20th birthday, he got arrested in a hair with five bricks of weed on him. Yes. Right. And because he got frustrated when they held him up and, th- and said, well, I'll just blow this place up. And then he realized, oh, they're going to search me now. Right. It, yeah. It, yeah. Which uh, you have to think on some level, that's like him saying, I want to get out of this business. And then he drifted for a while. He did landscaping, surveying, hauling concrete blocks. And then he followed his brother to Second City Comedy Club in Chicago. Yeah. And the people that he got on stage with, I mean, John Candy, John Belushi, Harold Ramis, Gilda Radner. I mean, that tells you this was just a ripe time period. Yeah, and that for, this is like the place where they all were, yeah. you know, like both like in Chicago and Toronto, that uh, you know, sort of like it was the breeding ground for the whole generation of comedians. And he did a couple of characters there, Carl Spackler in The Second City, which later became the inspiration for The Groundskeeper and Caddyshack. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and then Nick the Lounge Singer, which later went to – Right, yeah, Saturday like Night the Live. seeds of both of those. So he eventually made it to Saturday Night Live and he made it to the movies, and then he's got, uh, again, I guess, do you have a favorite Bill Murray movie? Um, there's, I'm going to say Lost in Translation. Oh, you I like that? Yeah, I mean, like, I love uh, the early comedies, right. uh, but uh, the ones that really speak more deeply to me are uh, sort of like the rueful, like, older characters uh, you know, like the Wes Anderson movies are great. Too, Were you surprised so. that he was able to do dramatic Completely. versus comedy? Yeah. Because, yeah. uh, uh, you know, like he had done uh, The Razor's Edge, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of around the same time as Ghostbusters. And it's not a disaster, but it's not great. You don't look at it and say, this is a guy who's going to, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like be one of our better dramatic actors. And he's really, you know, like he had another gear, it turned out. Mm-hmm. Well, let's turn to the uh, 10 principles for a second. These aren't quite as clear as uh, the ones for, maybe not quite as concrete, I suppose, as the ones uh, for Tom Hanks. Right. Uh, you've got... Uh, there is a certain amount of, I've got all these amazing stories. I yeah. want you. To, I want to share these stories yeah, with you, but, and yeah. let's make them uh, you know, sort of work so together. J- just read those 10 right quick. All right. The first principle, objects are opportunities. The second principle... Surprise is golden. Randomness is lobster. The third principle, invite yourself to the party. The fourth principle, make sure everybody else is invited to the party. The fifth principle, music makes the people come together. The sixth principle, drop coin on the world. The seventh principle, be persistent, be persistent, be persistent. The eighth principle, know your pleasures and their parameters. The ninth principle, your spirit will follow your body. The tenth principle, while the earth spins, make yourself useful. Okay, so we're just going to have to read the book to find out what these mean, right? <laughs> well, uh, some of them yeah, you can see yeah. are actually... Uh, well, objects yeah. are opportunities. I mean, I, so That's, you, uh, you, you might not realize that, that in that chapter... Um, or in that principle, you start out with a story about the uh, golf cart in Scandinavia. Right. He steals a golf cart and yeah. is driving it around uh, late at night. In, uh, and he gets arrested and has to uh, right. give, give a DUI, and he, he declines citing American legislation. <laughs> 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 and he wasn't visibly drunk, and uh, it turned out that he had only 0.03%, which is way below the general American DUI standard, but... Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's stricter in Scandinavia is 0.02 percent, yes. and he had to pay a fine. He says, "Well, for having any amount of alcohol and having a golf cart, you have to pay something. It's just a courtesy, I guess." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, where do you find a story like that? Um, uh, that one he told on himself. So, but there was uh, that was a combination of he uh, some of the details come from him being on David Letterman and talking about it, and just it was in the news. Like, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, he gets arrested. It's a a matter of public record. Um, You know, the next story is about him uh, stealing a rug, uh, like, on tour with Second City. Um, I remember I got that from, like, a history of Second City. Like, you know, he's, like, uh, he's at some college dean's house and, like, steals the rug and they have to, like, go back and return it. Sounds like an animal house thing or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. which he wasn't in. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, let's, let's give the listeners uh, an idea of what these, one of these chapters is like with, right. with the 10th principle. Uh, so uh, this is the beginning of uh, the 10th principle, which is, while the earth spins, make yourself useful. In October 2006, 
Bill Murray participated in a celebrity tournament at the legendary St. Andrews Lynx Golf Course, playing alongside Michael Douglas, Hugh Grant, and Dennis Hopper. One night after he was done with golf, Bill went drinking at the trendy Ma Bell's Bar and chatted up Leiky Stavneff, a 22-year-old Norwegian blonde who was in Scotland to study social anthropology. When last call came, Stavneff invited Bill to accompany her and her friend Marie Bergen to a party they knew about. To her surprise, he accepted the invitation. You know, Scotland closes kind of early, Bill said later. It was just a whole bunch of people saying, oh, we're going to the next thing. They walked through the cobblestone streets of St. Andrews and ended up at a party in a Georgian townhouse filled with Scandinavian exchange students. Nobody could believe it when I arrived at the party with Bill Murray, Stavneff said. She worried that there were no clean glasses at the party, but Bill was happy to drink vodka from a coffee cup. Then he went one step further. He walked over to the sink, rolled up the sleeves of his plaid shirt, and started washing dishes. As Bill told the story, the party was way ahead of us, and there was no way to catch up. So I looked around, it was like a college dorm. Not a dorm, but a house. And like a college house, it was kind of a mess. And I realized, well, I gotta do something. I can't stand still, because everyone's way ahead of us. So I just started washing the dishes. And it was great fun, because we got to wash the dishes, and you could talk a little and keep washing the dishes. Bill diligently scraped dried pasta off a dish, joking with an economics students that maybe they should just reheat it. As word spread that Bill was at the party, more people showed up, many of them young Scandinavians. The booze was quickly depleted, but Bill stayed for a while anyway. The party had acquired its own momentum. You can't just walk in and walk out, Bill said of the party. That feels strange. But if you walk into someone's house, do all the dishes and leave, then you feel like you've made a contribution. So you have in this book also some little interludes, the dark side of Bill Murray. So right. he's not, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, I think, uh, he didn't. He doesn't show up on time. Yep. He doesn't respond. Um, there are other things that he's done. Perhaps it wouldn't endear him to people if, if you got... If you got to know those, uh, there is um, uh, one uh, thing where he's working on the script for I think it was Scrooge with a couple of writer friends, um, mm-hmm. and they're out at some place in like Palm Springs, and this like rich woman just keeps hassling him for like I need an autograph and I need a photo and I need yeah, another yeah. autograph, and after like several days of this, he says, "Okay, I'm going to give you this next autograph, but if I do, I get to throw you in the pool." Yeah, and, and, he's he like, oh! yeah. and so he gives her the autograph, yeah. and then he throws her in the pool. Well, maybe mm-hmm. she deserved that. <laughs> Uh, so have you taken the time to compare the Ten Principles to the Ten Commandments to see what uh, these two what have lines? I mean, I've not done like a point-by-point point comparison. Um, I, I will say that— I'm just trying to think, is there a secret sauce here, you know, that we uh, can, can develop yeah. from this? Um, you know, sort of, uh, there is a certain amount of Bill in Tom, uh, that mm-hmm. like it's not the fundamental motor that makes him go— but he does delight in the, doing that just not as much as Bill because Bill, like, it seems to be, like, his mission in life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sort of, like, Tom will be out for, like, a jog in Central Park and, you know, sort of, like, see a couple getting married and say, hey, you know, like, let me jump in and take right. some photos with right. you. And do you have an officiant? You know, because, like, a, right. yeah. I'm ordained, so That's I can right. do it if you need. Yeah. And, well, there's one that jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Hank's fifth commandment is worship in the church of baseball. Mm-hmm. And Bill Murray's eighth principle is know your pleasures. Yes. And Bill Murray is a diehard Cubs fan. Right? Um, and also, like, owns, yeah. like, a minor league team. Right. Uh, and, you know, sort of, you know, like, I think I mean, certainly a diehard Cubs fan, but also, like, has gotten a lot of pleasure out of minor league baseball over the years. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that, that these two very successful uh, actors are drawn to a game that has no time limits? And uh, are drawn to teams that were traditionally losers. Right. Uh, that with, like, Bill, it's the Cubs, and with uh, Tom, it was the Cleveland Indians. It reflects their upbringing, mm-hmm. um, that in each case, uh, you know, sort of like, um, you know, Tom went through uh, that tough divorce. Um, Bill's father died when Bill was pretty young. And so uh, you need something to, like, pour yourself into. Um, and, that you know, so you've got all this, like, energy and passion and it, it's not obvious what you're going to do with it, but like baseball can absorb that. Uh, mm-hmm. That you know, sort of, it's uh, 
it's got the time, it's got the rhythm, it's got sort of like the richness that you know you can spend years of your life, you know, sort of like feeling like yourself is intertwined with baseball. Mm. And then when you get older, uh, you know, you can say, oh, I can put this passion into other things, including like my career and acting. But you never really completely leave baseball behind. They both still care about it. All right, we can't get through a show here without talking about writing. And uh, we've got this segment we call the author to author segment where I get previous season authors to toss me some questions, which I can then throw at All right. current season yeah. authors. So this, this, these questions come from author Pam Kelly. She's written a book called Money Rock. It uh, grew out of her work at the Charlotte Observer, where she was a reporter. And uh, self-awareness described Money Rock as a hell of a story, like a New South version of The Wire. And actually, it, it took place not far from where we're sitting here. Um, uh, Money Rock, the man, was one of Charlotte's most successful cocaine dealers in the in the 70s. And 80s. So her work is nonfiction. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So... Um, her first question relates to to the research, and um, you know, how did you go about you know researching, and what was the strangest thing you had to do, or the most unexpected thing you learned in that process? My favorite thing, um, so I mean, I push every button that's available to me. That you know, sort of like I'm doing the Bill Murray book, and you know, sort of. I'm asking people if they have stories. I'm looking through like newspaper and magazine clippings. And I'm also doing just like old fashioned shoe leather reporting. I went, I didn't want to, you know, sort of like you know, bother his family. Um, uh, but I figured it was fair game to talk to anybody whose life he had like parachuted into and then parachuted mm-hmm. out of. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went to like places where he lived. Um, there was one in like um, upstate New York. I just like walked around asking people like, "Hey, you know, did you know Bill Murray? Did you like ever have a story?" You kind of did a Bill Murray. You just went on the street. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, sort of nine out of ten people go, "Oh no, I heard he lives in town." Yeah. But then every now and then you get something golden. And there was one guy who uh, said, "Well, I don't personally, but like the guy who owns like the wine shop one town over, like yeah. I remember he has a story, and like the wine shop had moved, and I had to track it down, and so like I went in and like I bought a couple of bottles of wine, and the guy had like." These amazing stories about, like, you know, sort of, like, Bill shows up in a rainstorm, like, uh, having just bought, like, Evil Knievel's helmet, and he, like, <laughs> arrives, like, on his own motorcycle. Uh, or, you know, sort of, like, he's uh, talking with Bill, and people are starting to, like, recognize, oh, famous guy in the shop, yeah. and, like, crowd Bill, and Bill just, like, goes out into the street and starts a snowball fight. Um, mm. So... It was and things that had just never been written about anywhere else. So and how long did it take to, to to gather those stories? How, how many years? I mean, I, I wrote each book. It took me just about exactly a year. How much was the research part of it? About half. So like okay. about six months of researching, and then I say uh, like, all right, you know, sort of time to settle down and start writing. So you do then in that order. You research first, or do you start writing a little bit? Um, you- in the case of uh, that, is usually. My approach, like do all the research and then like sort of I can figure out I'm very structure oriented right. and I can't structure until I know what I'm working with. But in the case of Bill, as I went, this, there were so many like bite sized anecdotes that I some of them I wrote up as I went along because I said, OK, I, I'm going to tell this story in like sort of 400 words and I've got it on the hard disk and I'll figure out like where to put it as the book comes together. All right, a second question from Pam. Do you like to spit out a messy first draft, or are you one of those people like me who struggles to move forward until the beginning feels right? I um, am very structure-oriented, um, and that's sort of like the magazine background of if I've only got 1,200 words to tell a story, I don't want to hand in 3,000 and like let my editor choose which 1,200. It feels like wasted effort to me. Hmm. So before I start writing, you know, I don't have every single thing, but I've got a pretty good, all right, this is, section one's going to be about this, and then section two, like, I break it down, and mm-hmm. then uh, the thing I get really tortured about is the opening sentence. You know, like, I can spend you know, just, like, a day wandering around in circles. I feel like it's important, it's Yeah, there are, like, 80,000 words here, and you're worried about that first sentence. Yeah, right? the, the, yeah. and I think it is really important, but, like, once I've got yeah. it, it's yeah. like, oh, like, yeah. okay. Yeah, like on this rock, I will build my church, and then I yeah. can go forward. The yeah. uh, opening lines are great. Um, all right, third question: uh, What have you learned the hard way in your writing experience? Uh, um, when you're doing an interview, uh, just like 
the tape recorder is sometimes just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, uh, and the, the, yeah, the technical piece, yeah. uh, you know, sort of like if I'm on the phone, I will like both tape it and take notes. And if I'm talking to somebody in person, like that's distracting, but like, the, you know, I'm constantly peering at the tape recorder. Okay. Is the red light on? Is the red light on? Is it okay? Uh, just, I've had, you know, I've done hundreds of interviews over the uh, years and, 99% of them, it works out fine, but that's enough that you remember the ones where, you know, sort of like you go back and listen and get like dead air and you say, whoa, what am I going to do now? So in getting these people to talk to you and there's several steps to the process, mm-hmm. you got to reach out to them, then yep. you got to set it up and then you got to conduct the interview. And, sure. And yeah. I will say that, you know, I mean, so some of that is just like the nuts and bolts of knowing the right person to ask and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like uh, writing a compelling uh, pitch. One of the things about, you know, sort of just interviewing famous people is that you have to assume they've been asked most of the obvious questions 800 Mm -hmm. times already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so part of my job is to not ask the obvious questions uh, that, you know, sort of like go in and if you want them to open up and be more interesting and compelling and not give you the autopilot interview, you have to sort of like show them that you've lived up to your end of the bargain, that you're going to uh, like be asking things they don't usually get. So what would you, final question for Pam, what would you tell an aspiring author about the publishing process? Uh, the publishing process? Well, you know, the aspiring author needs to just write all right, the time. Right. Uh, so that yeah. the, the publishing process is a bear. That, yeah. you know, sort of start, you know, like not just write all the time, but like get assignments wherever you can, even if at first they're not paying much. But, you know, you're going to learn the uh, mm-hmm. By it's not just sort of like a random tweet or something that's like in your notebook, but saying I had to write 500 words on, uh, you know, like this person who owns a bakery shop and like that's a really valuable experience by itself. So, yeah, start like do whatever you can to have concrete assignments at first and just like learn from that. So have these books uh, impacted your life in any way? Yeah. Uh, I mean. I guess I should say what you learned. Sure. So. I'm old enough that, you know, like, I'm not a tabula rasa at this point. That, you know, sort of like, I've got a personality, I've got a set of beliefs. uh, But I think that, you know, sort of, you spend time in somebody's head like that. And of course, it's going to rub off on you and it's going to color you. That, you know, sort of, you know, like, you spend uh, uh, time, like a year working on Tom Hanks and you think about being decent and Mm -hmm. how you can sort of, like, make other people's, like, lives better and be gracious about Mm -hmm. it. And you spend, you know, like sort of a year inside. It's like if he can do it, why can't I? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, and you spend a. Of course, a do you want to aspire to be like Bill Murray? I mean, that's. A, <laughs> you see, uh, the the failure mode of Bill Murray is asshole, right? Yeah, right, uh, right that you know, right. sort of like, you know, the failure mode of uh, Tom Hanks is like, oh, it wasn't quite as nice as you hoped for. So, yeah, you yeah. know, like part of the joy of Bill is that he reads the room really well, uh, mm-hmm. and that he knows when the behavior is going to go over and when it's not going to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think I dialed it up a bit, but you don't want to be the guy who's like, hey, here I am and the party can start. Right. Uh, but what it does uh, make you embrace is you just like cherish just sort of like the randomness of life and like, you know, having a couple of young kids that, you mm-hmm. know, sort of you know, like kids are naturally like improvisational. Or you've like, got two children, right? I've yeah. got two young boys. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, you know, enjoying them even more on that level of like accepting like the randomness of parenthood. When we were setting up this interview, you had uh, quite a bit on your plate. You're working on something new. Can you tell us about that? I can. I'm uh, uh, working on a book about uh, Fred Rogers uh, called Kindness and Wonder, um, which actually I've finished. I write my first drafts longhand. um, Mm -hmm. And so I have uh, finished writing the book, but I am uh, typing it this week. Uh, So if I have like weird hundred yard stare tunnel vision, it's because, you know, I've just been like, no, wait a minute. You, you write it all out. I am like a legal pad. Yep. And then you go back and type. I do, which I, uh, I know is unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like it both because I like the sense of flow I get into as I'm writing it, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it helps just like the words spill out of me a little more naturally. And, it's very easy when you're reading over a long manuscript that your eyes can just kind of glaze over and you're like, ah, that looks fine. But when you're typing it, you have to deeply engage with every single sentence and every single word. So mm-hmm. it really makes me like, I revise and polish as I'm typing it up. And uh, that helps out a lot. But 
it's time consuming. All right, we look forward to that. Uh, where can people find your books? Well, uh, just about anywhere books are sold. For example, here in Charlotte, Park Road Books. Absolutely. Yeah. Good, good. And uh, you have a website? Um, uh, rule42.com. Yeah, or, I wondered about that. R- what is. Um, the, uh, so. Um, the, <laughs> it's from Alice in Wonderland, okay, uh, which was right. my first favorite book when I was a kid. Um, right. And uh, it's at the uh, trial of the Jack of Hearts, and uh, um, the, the Alice is attending, um, and uh, the King of Hearts, who's presiding, doesn't like her being there. Um, and You couldn't just go with GavinEdwards.com? That, that gets you there, too. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it actually does. <laughs> so you can remember that. But the king says, yeah. Rule 42, all persons taller than a mile high to leave the courtroom. And she says, well, I'm not a mile high, and that's not a proper rule. You just made it up. Yeah. And he says, it's the oldest rule in the book. She <laughs> says, well, then it should be rule number one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Gavin, this has been great. appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk to us about your writing and your books, and uh, we look forward to your next one. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure, Landis. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. If you liked our show, please tell your friends. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, by the way, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website, and authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thanks for doing that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and their resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Next week, we welcome Kathy Izzard to the show who will read and talk about her book, The Hunter Story Home, Battling Chronic Homelessness in Charlotte. Until then, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>